0: Good morning, my name is Shelly McCarran, and I get to read our scripture today. It's Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Titicus, will you tell us all, um, will you tell all about my activities? He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how, how we are and that he may encourage your hearts and with him, O our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for all of those in Laodicea, and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church at her house. And when the letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. See to it then that you read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you.
1: Thanks, Shelly. Man, if nothing else, we got a bunch of uh, great names for Zach and Emily's kids, right? (laughs) Well, it's so good to be with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Gary Osborne, and I'm one of the pastors on staff I look forward to being here each and every time, just to kind of see and be encouraged by you and just what God is doing out here in Thornton. And I'm just so excited just to share what I've kind of been learning over the last few weeks as I've been kind of studying God's Word. For those of you who don't know, the last month we've been doing this series, How Do We Flourish in Love Like Jesus? And it really kind of is connected to different types of relationships, and I'm just excited because God has created us to be in relationships. Our Relationships are a critical part of our life, and the reality is sometimes relationships can be difficult and can cause us a lot of harm and heartache in the midst of that. And some of us, even it will because of our hard relationships, it will lead us to Isolation at times, but God desires our relationships to be healthy, to be encouraging, to be loving, so that we can flourish. Now, Harvard University did a study on what it means to flourish as humans. The study uh, com- complied evidence-based activities and interventions that have been shown to promote well-be- well-being. The study looked at factors around the aspects of human flourishing, including happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and close social relationships. The study concluded that there are four main main pathways to human flourishing. That includes strong connections to family, meaning that you would have great relationships inside the family. That work was really important, that you had a meaningful place to contribute to the overall good of society. Education was part of it, that you would be a lifelong learner. And the fourth pathway is religious community. You heard that right. Harvard did a research study that concludes that to have the most fulfillment and life satisfaction as an individual, you need to be connected to a church that is building a Christ-centered community of people fully devoted to loving God and loving others. Whoa, Harvard came up with that. No, that's, that's not exactly what it said, but you would be part of a community of people who are united in their belief and what it's all about. And I think it's a little bit funny because that's what the New Testament has been teaching us for the last 2,000 years, that the church is critical to your life so that you can flourish. And the, the church is the people of God, those who've been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus and are unified by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim um, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. The true church is compromised of individuals who are connected to one another because they have been justified through faith and have believed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And unity brings us together to celebrate, remember, and encourage one another to live as faithful followers of Christ. Hebrews 10.24 says this about the church. And let us consider how we may stir one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, some, as in some are in habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The church gathers together regularly. It is the organism that Jesus left for his people to grow as faithful followers of Christ. Harvard University concluded what the Bible has been teaching for many, many years, that to flourish as a human, you need to be part of a spiritual community that is critical to your overall health, happiness, well-being, well-being and life fulfillment. So I believe that Colossians 4 is going to give us a great picture of what it looks like to be a part of a church that is flourishing. Sometimes in passages like this, if you're anything like me, we tend to skip over them pretty quickly because there's a lot of hard names to pronounce in them. And so it was like, ah, I don't even know what's that there. We read these names, we're not sh- sure who they are. And so we go, we, we, we walk by them quickly. So this morning, I just wanna take some time and say, okay, what does the Lord have in store for us as we look at Colossians 4? And so I have a few ideas that I want to share with you of characteristics of what it looks like to be a church that flourishes. Now, if I struggle with the names, I hope that's not distracting. I've listened to them repeatedly, but I hope that you will hear the message behind what we're trying to say this morning. So here are five features of a flourishing church. Number one is this. The church flourishes through faithful service servants. So the church flourishes through faithful servants. Tychicus, this is uh, Colossians 4-7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Repeatedly in this text, Paul uses the word fellow servant, faithful minister, faithful brother, fellow worker, and... Uh being part of the believer is what God has called us to do is being part of the church. And God has gifted everyone with gifts of love, service, ability to care and teach the community of believers. The Bible is clear that God has purposed each of us that we have unique gifts and talents to help the church grow to full maturity. In many of Paul's letters to the churches, he introduces himself even as a fellow servant, as a bond servant. Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be a servant to all and give himself as a ransom for many. Jesus says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant of all. But it's more than being just a faithful servant. Um, that w- the, oh, sorry. It's that word that I want to be a faithful servant because it's the, lear- the words I long for one day. One day I long to hear, well done, good, and faithful servant. It is the call for all of us believers to use the gifts given by the Holy Spirit for us as the church to flourish. Ephesians 2 says this, so we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. Like God has gifted each of us to do good works. We're his unique workmanship, and he wants us to serve the Lord. Ephesians 4 says this, and he gave them apostles. He gave some of them to be apostles, to prophets, evangelists, and to shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. So what it's saying is God has given each of us unique gifts and talents for the purpose of building up the church to full maturity. And I am convinced that when we do not use our gifts and talents, that we are robbing the rest of the body of believers from from growing to full maturity. We need, all need each other to be using the gifts that God has given us so that we can grow into the likeness of Jesus and flourish as a church. So if we want to flourish as the church, we need to be faithful servants. God has called each one of you to serve in a unique way the body of believers so that we can become mature. The second one is this, is the church thrives through encouragement. So the next, the verse continues this. I have sent him, Tychicus, to you for this purpose, that you may know how you are, that he may encourage your hearts. Sorry. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. The purpose of Paul sending Tychicus was so that he could encourage your hearts your hearts. Encouragement is so powerful. In this passage, we are kind of given two names that help point us to what it looks like to be encouragement or what does encouragement look like in the church. The first is Tychicus and the second is Barnabas. And Barnabas is just a subtle name here in the passage. He doesn't really talk much of it, but if you remember who Barnabas is, he was known as the son of encouragement. That's what his name means. Barnabas means the son of encouragement. And he was kind of Paul's counterpart as Paul first started going on missionary journeys. And Paul traveled with him to go and take the good news throughout the the world. And so that Paul and him were just kind of buddies, and Barnabas really encouraged him in his faith. And and so we all know that we need people to encourage us because encouragement is critical to our lives. We need people who are cheerleaders. We need them to be our advocates. We need those people in our lives because though their words are so powerful. I know I personally had a mentor who really used to encourage me, and the things that he used to say to me made me want to do more, and made me want to live for the kingdom of God, and made me want to really pursue what it looks like to to reach out and help other people follow christ he would use words like this hey gary you are dangerous for the kingdom of god and as a young man hearing like man i'm dangerous for the kingdom of god that just like riled me up inside and said man i want to go and do something for the lord He said you are an ambassador you're an agent of restoration these are words that i heard 20 years ago that i remember having a profound impact on me All of us have people in our lives who really know how to encourage us. The words that people speak to us are really powerful. We all need encouragers in our life. Maybe you can think of a person in your life who encouraged you, someone who spurred you on towards love and good deeds. Because when they speak truth into your life, when they see an area where you can grow and use your gifts, there's something powerful about that. The words of a, of, of a mentor, of a friend, of a trusted person, the words of someone who you respect are so powerful in our lives. A few, a few of these, these verses from Proverbs came to mind as I was thinking that and thinking about words. Proverbs 16, 24 says this, Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the whole body. Proverbs 10:11 says this, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. When we hear encouraging words, it fuels our heart and our soul. Remember what I mentioned earlier in Hebrews 10, and let us consider how we stir one another up to love and good deeds. How are we encouraging one another? How are we stirring up love and good deeds in our lives? But we want to encourage each other all the more as we see the, the day approaching. Encouragement stirs us up. Encouragement motivates us to do more. Encouragement fuels our life. And so the mark of a church that flourishes people who know how to encourage one another, how to speak truth to one another, how to motivate one another, how to care for one another in those deep, dark, hard times. Proverbs 27:17 says this: "As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another." It is verses like this that give us a great picture of what we are called to in life. Is how we're called to live, to encourage one another and sharpen one another. So the question is: Who are you encouraging? Or who has encouraged you to in your walk of the Lord? And just think about that person and how they encourage you in your life. And maybe you can be that person to someone else. Because if we're going to be a church that flourishes, flourishes if we're going to be a community of people that flourishes, we need to be people who serve and we need to be people who um, encourage one another. The third, third feature that I saw as I was reading through the text is, is this. a is church is unified through forgiveness. Now, we never necessarily see the word forgiveness in this text. But if you know the stories of the the characters, you might have maybe heard of the one of Omnissius. Now, Omnissius is a faithful, beloved brother um, who is one of you, is what what Paul says. But the story of Omnissius is that he was a runaway slave. And if you flip over, I think it's the next page in your Bible, to the book of Philemon, that's the story of Onesimus, Anis- uh, is that he was a slave to Philemon, and he, he ran away from it, and then he comes to faith in the Lord. And so Paul is saying, hey, if we're going to flourish, or when you see Amnesius again, accept him back in, because he is a true believer in the faith. This is what Philemon says, for this perhaps is why... Uh, He was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, Paul is saying, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account." I mean, that's the, the encouragement here is, is, is Paul saying, listen, we need to be unified as the church, and the way we unify together is through forgiveness, because this is an p- important part of our spiritual life. There's another little side story that you have to do some careful reading to see, and it's in verse 10, where it says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom I've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him as well if you remember the story back in the book of Acts, Barnabas and Paul, like I was saying, they would go out on these missionary journeys. But at some point, there was a strong disagreement all about Mark. Barnabas wanted Mark to join him on the journey. Paul did not want him to join on the journey. And because of this strong disagreement, Paul and Barnabas went separate ways. And here we are later on in the story, and and Paul is saying, hey, if, if Mark comes back to you, receive him and welcome him back. There's this idea of reconciliation, forgiveness that is happening, even in Paul's heart, because he knows the biggest picture. And so if the church is going to flourish, if we as people are going to flourish, we need to learn how to forgive quickly. It's an important part of our life is that forgiveness is something that we desperately need in the church and in our lives. And back in Colossians 3.13, where we kind of started out this series, it says, "...bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive." When it comes to forgiveness, we should look at what Jesus says, "...for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses." The command to forgive others is is a strong warning that's given to them. Doing life with others is going to require uh, to forgive quickly. Forgiveness is an intentional decision that we all need to make when others commit a wrong against us. We need to release the anger and the resentment that we have for someone so that we can get things right with them and be in, prop, in in right relationship. It needs to become a posture of our heart to forgive quickly, not needing to feel like you have been justified or that you get to uh, res- get what you need to, to, to be able to um, move on, but that you are able to forgive without anything coming back your way. We need to work at this hard because I know many of us have been deeply hurt by others. And this is just the reality of our life. We hurt others sometimes and others hurt us. And so when someone has hurt us, we have to continue to work to forgive them so that bitterness doesn't build up in our hearts and that we are able to free those people and in essence really freeing ourselves. The reason that we can forgive others is because the Lord has forgiven us you. So I ask this question this morning. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone that has hurt you? Is there someone that you need to release? Or maybe you have hurt someone. Maybe you've done something to cause someone some pain, and you need to go to them and seek forgiveness. My encouragement, friends, this morning is if you're holding on to something, let it go because we don't want it to trap us. If your spouse has wronged you in some way, get things right with them. If you have a kid that maybe has caused you some grief in your heart, go things and make things right. If maybe there's a coworker or a friend at school, my encouragement, if we are gonna thrive as followers of Christ, forgiveness needs to be something that we work on on a regular basis. It's hard. This is not an easy thing to do in our life because there are some great wounds that all of us have felt over the years. But if we look at what's happening here as Paul's kind of thanking everyone and reminding everyone who the people are in the church, there's a couple of stories of real forgiveness that has happened so that we can be unified as the body of believers. So you can be right in your daily relationships. So you can be as one with your spouse. Forgiveness is gonna be something that you need to put into place on a regular basis kind of the fourth feature of a mature of a church that flourishes is this the church matures through prayer here it is later on uh, epaphras who is one of you a servant of Jesus Christ greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of god And don't you just love that language? He's struggling on your behalf. It reminds me that, you know, in Romans 8 where it says, the spirit groans that words cannot express. Wouldn't you want a prayer warrior in your life that is passionate and is persistent in prayer and who's praying for you? This is what Epaphras does for the church is that he's praying and struggling on your behalf as a church. The longer I am at Calvary, I am so thankful for the continual emphasis on being a praying church. It's verses like James five sixteen says, The prayer of a righteous church person has great power as it is working. It is stories of Elijah, where he was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three and a half years, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave, and then the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's stories of Nehemiah. When he heard these things, he sat down, he prayed and fasted before the God of heaven, and he said, Lord, help us. And then the Lord used him to build the wall back up in Jerusalem. We see that Jesus teaches his disciples what it looks like to pray with the Lord's prayer. We see Jesus in the garden before his death, praying for the church. Paul opens many of his letters with a prayer to to pray for the church. Even here in Colossians 4, in a few uh, verses earlier, it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. We want to be a praying church. That's one of the marks that we want to have as a church, that we would be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. We want to have people like Epaphras who are struggling on our, on our behalf in prayer so that we might become mature, knowing who, God really, who Christ really is. We, do you know that there are people at Calvary who are praying for this campus and, and trusting God to lead this campus on a regular basis. I think there's a, a story that maybe many of you don't know about from Calvary side, how we got to this point. Back in 2000, it was about this time of year, in 2019, which is hard to imagine how quickly time has gone since 2019. So about five years ago, I think we, we said about February, we said we need to pray for 130 days. It correlated us as a church. We were going to celebrate 130 years of kind of being a church. And so for 130 days, the church prayed and seek the Lord for kind of what's the next step for the church. And after 130 days, Pastor Tom stood up at Mackey Auditorium with both both Boulder and Erie campuses there and said, we are going to open a third campus. And then... He said, we're going to pray again because we don't know for sure where that's going to be. And so for the next 90 days, actually, Pastor Tom went on sabbatical. The elders and the church began to pray and said, Lord, where are we going to open up a church? And we had different ideas, and Thornton was never on the radar. But we really felt the Lord was leading us to Thornton. So after 90 days, when Tom came back from a sabbatical, the leadership said, I think we're going to Thornton. And then Tom announced it to Thor- or that to the church, we're opening uh, campus in Thornton. And at that time, we had no idea where we were going to meet. We were thinking we were going to meet in a rec center or a school. And then we said, we just had to continue to kind of pray. And then the story kind of goes like this. On January 2nd, I knocked on those doors and kind of said, hey, is, we've heard that there might be a change happening here. So January 2nd, 2020, knocked on the doors and no one was really around, but they got me in touch with a, a guy named Tim. And on January 5th, Tim called me back, and um, we talked for a little bit. And then a week later, on January 12th, the, the, the members who were here, the 13 members of here, came to an annual, or not a, just a, it was more of a town hall meeting that we were having about the third campus at the, our Erie campus, and just said, okay, this is what we're doing. They, they checked it out. So that was... January 12th. On January 26th, Tom Shirt came out here and preached to that congregation. I think if I get my my dates right here. On February 9th, the church invited us to come to a wonderful luncheon at Mimi's Cafe, which I remember being there. And then on, Jan- or on February 23rd, the church had voted to give us the facility and all the assets. Friends. I don't know the full story, but I know they were seeking the Lord for a long, long time as well. But on our side, it was a year of consistent praying to say, Lord, what do you have in store for us? And we had no agenda when we started off. Because, Lord, what's next for Calvary? And so when I say it's fun to come out here and see what's happening, it's because that started with a little initiative to say we want to pray and seek the Lord in this time. And here we are today, gathering as a community of believers, who are trying to be fully devoted to loving God and loving others. And it just encouraged me, this is the power of prayer in our lives. Another person that I just think we should know about, because when I hear this story, it encouraged me. Over 50 years ago, they were talking at our Boulder campus that they wanted to build a building. They were meeting in a small facility that was over by the Boulder Community Hospital, and they were looking at some land that we now have as the Kalmia property. And there was a group of men who started praying on Thursday mornings, and they prayed, what will the facility look like? Should we buy this property? And they began to pray weekly over a period of time. And the Lord did great things, and the Boulder campus happened, and here's the truth. Those men continued to pray. To this day, Doug Palmer and his group of men meet on Thursday mornings, and they pray for the church. Friends, that was over 50 years ago. There was a group of men who met every Thursday morning to pray for the church. Now, over the years, as you can imagine, that group has rotated in and out, but Doug Palmer is still one of those guys who prays consistently for the church. Can you even imagine what he has helped, like, save us from as a church like i just think of the prayers of a righteous person and all the trouble we could have gotten into as a church but there were faithful men and women not just doug and his group but there's so many at calvary who are seeking the lord on behalf of the church and they are struggling so that we as a church might become mature and see the fullness of god the mark of a church is we want to be devoted to prayer who are you praying for who are you struggling in prayer for? Is it a kid? Is it a family member? Is it a coworker? Are you struggling in prayer for the church? Because friends, that's what we want to do. We want to we be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. I hope that there's stories about some of you in this room one day. that said, I prayed for my kid for 30 years and they finally came to trust the Lord. Or I prayed for my uncle for 22 years, and then right before he passed away, he trusted the Lord. And I prayed for the church. We struggle through prayer is what we want to do. This is the mark of a flourishing church. The fifth one is this. The church grows through generosity, hospitality. Hospitality. Here's what it says in Colossians 4.15. Give my greetings to my brothers at Ludicia, and to uh, Nympha and the church in her house. Generosity is what sets us apart. It is part of what makes the church different from most organizations and groups in the world. God's people are generous with their time, talents, and treasure. We see this in this text with Nympha who was willing to open up their home to allow the church to meet in their house. I imagine that for most people in the first century, like similar how it is today, that their most valuable physical asset was their home. And so to open your home is an extremely generous thing to do in the first century and now. It was also generous that it might have been very dangerous to do that at that time, depending on the environment or the specific surroundings that could have happened through persecution. And so the church had many people who were willing to open up their home so that people could meet and gather and function as the church. And I think about the one thing about Calvary that I am so thankful is the generosity here I think is incredible. And we want to continue to grow in generosity. But I just think about even earlier this year how the church raised $160,000 for outside organizations. Not for us, but to bless the community. And so that we were able to help our ministry partners around the world and locally and also to help be a part of the problem of helping with attainable housing. And $160,000 was given through the Heart of Advent initiative. Over, over the years that we've been doing the Heart of Advent, to outside organizations, we've given over a million dollars. I'm amazed at the people of Calvary and how we've given, listen to this, friends, over $1.5 million, maybe, and we're closing in on $2 million, to like... Um, College ministry efforts. So, Campus Crusade for Christ, Navigators. We just have had a heart over the years where the church has given almost $2 million to see students reached for the gospel. Roughly 10% of our budget now, close to $500,000 a year, goes to the outside community to tell people about the love of Christ. Now, generosity isn't just demonstrated in monetarily giving. I think of a couple of stories where generosity has just been demonstrated to me over my life. The first one is my parents. And my parents live in California, and you might have heard of a trip that happens here at Calvary in the high school ministry called the Iron Man. And the Iron Man was based off that verse I read here, is iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. That was the whole deal with students is that we would help them encourage one another and sharpen each other in the faith. but. The Ironman trip started in 1998, where 17 people drove to California. And at the time, my parents opened up their home and allowed 17 people to stay there for the week. Well, over the years, things grew because what high school student, and you got to put yourself back 25 years ago, didn't want to go to California over spring break. That was like a big deal at the time. And so that trip in three years grew to the point where we were taking a bus And so 50 people were going to California and staying in my parents' house. By the end, 85 people were going every year and staying in my parents' house. Now, I need you to flip what you might think my parents' house looks like. No basements in California, mind you. It was 1,900 square feet. Three bathrooms and we made it work, and like we slept kind of just shoulder to shoulder. We moved all the furniture out of the house and placed it in the garage, and my parents gave up their house to 85 high school students every year for 20 years. Not only that, they would sleep in their van out on the street so that they could give up their room so high school students to do that. And here's the truth. It was their anniversary every year we were there. So when I think of generosity, friends, that to me was a model of generosity. And it had nothing to do with what they could give monetarily, but it's what they could give out of what they had. My dad was a high school teacher. My mom didn't work. They didn't have a lot. They bought in California in the right period of time. But um, they, they just gave what they could because it was what they had to give to the Lord. I think of another family when we started the Erie campus and we were doing high school ministry there. I had this incredible family to say, hey, how can we help with student ministries? And we had kind of developed a different way. We were meeting in a home and we were kind of growing a little bit. And so they said, well, you can use our home. And so we would go to this family's house and every Wednesday night we'd show up and they would say, hey, why don't you bring the staff early and we will feed them dinner? Because staff were coming from work or from school. They just, they said, come here. And so they started feeding staff. And at the time there was probably, I don't know, eight staff. And then there was another 25 kids. And so there was eight staff and then 25 kids would come later and they had in their basement, a refrigerator and they just would stock it with soda. And so they, every kid could go down there, and every Wednesday night they could grab a soda and drink like three sips you know, and place it on the counter, never <laughs> finishing it, you know. Just. But they were so generous with doing that. And over the five years that we met in kind of this home group ministry, it grew to over 100 kids were showing up, and they would show up at this one house and then spread out to different houses. And then there was about 30 staff who would show up, and the staff would come and they would feed them dinner every week, and their basement was full of soda for a hundred kids and they would still take three sips and place that go and then they would make brownies for them for to, to kind of conclude the night i'm telling you the generosity of the gaskins was unparalleled because they wanted to see students reached for christ and they were willing to do whatever they take to do that that's what generosity looks like that's what the church needs to be like is to be a generous church It encourages me so much to think about, what does it really look like to be generous? And so the church grew. And let me me tell you this as well. I think about this all the time. After things were done, students would leave, I don't know, 9.30, 9.45. Kirk and Lisa would sit there with the adult leaders, and a lot of them college-age students, and would just give of themselves until about midnight. We would just sit around until about midnight that night. And they were, both had jobs and go to work the next day. But they just wanted to let their life model what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And those were rich times. Even for some people in this room, I think they got to experience what that time was looked like. So, friends, the church grows through Generosity. The last thing I want to share with you is this, is in Colossians 4.17, if you're still following along. And it said, um, Arcapus, I think that's how you say it, arcapus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. We learned that in the book of Philemon, Arcapus had also opened his home to the church that they could meet. And my hope today is that as we read this verse and we we think about how does the church flourish, we read these words. See that you fulfill the ministry you have received from the Lord. This campus needs everyone to be fully bought into living out God's mission, to be fully devoted to loving God and loving others, to be willing to make disciples, teaching them everything God has commanded us to do. There's a great little story in Mark 14 about a woman who breaks an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume at the feet of Jesus. And the disciples are kind of uh, frustrated with her at the time for breaking that, which could have been given to the poor. And Jesus kind of changes the picture there and he stands up for her and he says, wait a second, she has done a beautiful thing. And then these words echo in my heart all the time. He says this about her, she did What she could do. We're not asking anyone to do more than anyone can do, but see this verse here. See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry. Did you hear that? See that you fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given you. How are you contributing to the kingdom of God? How are you helping the church flourish? Is it through serving? Is it through prayer? Is it through generosity? We need to to do what the Lord has asked us to do. Not to do what the Lord has asked anyone else to do, but we need to see to it that we, insert your name there, fulfill the ministry the Lord gave.